Once upon a time in the great city of Calcutta, there lived a young man named Mohan. And uh, Mohan was born into a family of street magicians. They earned their living doing card tricks and coin tricks, sleight of hand stuff. But Mohan wanted to learn the real magic. And so he began asking around, who's the world's greatest magician? Because if he's going to learn the real magic, he's going to learn it from the real guy. And the word seemed to be that there was this magician in Rajasthan who was the world's greatest magician. And he got the name of the village. And eventually he set out to go find the world's greatest magician and see if he could become his apprentice. Now, the story of his travels from Calcutta across India to Rajasthan would probably entertain us for most of the evening, but we'll cut to the chase. And he arrives at the magician's village. And he asks where the magician lives. And he's told, oh, you can't miss it. The big house on the edge of town. There's a corral full of horses in front. Two-story house. Okay, he makes his way. It's a pretty magnificent-looking house. And he begins to lose his nerve. But he's come all this way. He's had all these adventures. And he sucks it in. He goes up and he knocks at the door. The door is opened. And he says, I've come to see the world's greatest magician. And the servant says, oh, please wait here. And he disappears. And in about a minute, this Indian man, who's short even by Indian standards, comes And he says, yes. And Mohan says, I've come to see the world's greatest magician. Oh, you have, have you? Ha, 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 ha. Come in, come in. Ha, 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 ha. He takes him upstairs and sits him down in a parlor and asks the usual questions. You know, where do you come from? Uh, Are your parents still alive? How many brothers and sisters do you have? If you've been to Asia, you know the questions, right? And this is going on. And... uh, Eventually, the world's greatest magician says to Mohan, well, why have you come all this way? And Mohan says, I want to learn the real magic. And just at that moment, the magician's wife comes into the room. She's got a silver tray, and on the tray is a teapot and two cups. And she walks over to Mohan and hands him a cup. And she picks up the teapot, and she starts to pour the tea. And when the tea first hits the bottom of the cup, there's a giant earthquake. We're talking eight on the Richter scale. I mean, serious shaking. Everybody is quite frightened. The magician's wife drops the tray, runs out of the room. The magician runs out of the room. Mohan drops his cup, runs out of the room. Everybody in the house is running outside. They're running to the corral. They've thrown open the gate to the corral. And everybody's jumping on the back of a horse and riding off. And Mohan, there's only one horse left. It's this big stallion. He leaps onto its back and hangs on for dear life. I mean, he's riding bareback, and he's got his hands into the stallion's mane, and the stallion is panicked because of the earthquake, which is still going on. And the horse just goes, and Mohan has got his eyes tightly closed and just trying not to fall off. And the horse gallops like mad for about 10 minutes and then begins slowing down. Mohan opens his eyes. The horse has run off into the desert there. But, you know, it gets the horse calmed down, finally pushes its head around, gets it turned around, follow the footprints back to the village. Except after about two minutes, the wind, which had been dead still, picks up a little bit. And then within another two minutes, it's a full-blown sandstorm. Luckily, there was a big rocky outcropping, and Mohan has managed to get the horse and himself into the lee of the wind, and there's nothing they can do but just wait for the sandstorm to blow itself out. It takes about an hour, and then as suddenly as it came up, it all settles down. It's totally quiet again. Okay, can't follow the footprints, hoofprints back to the village. But the horse knows the way home, right? Just mount up and say, let's go home, boy. Come on, let's go. The horse starts going. 
going. I'll be seeing the village now, any moment now. I'll be seeing some sign of human habitation just any moment now. 20 minutes. Couldn't run that far. Well, he was running really fast. Half an hour, an hour. Uh Uh-oh. This is seriously bad. Mohan is in the desert, and all he's got is a horse. He hasn't had anything to eat recently, and he didn't even get to drink any of his tea. He's already thirsty. And nothing. The sun's starting to go down. Okay, when it gets dark, he'll be able to see the lights, and he'll know where to go, right? Gets dark. No lights. Uh, This is seriously bad. Uh, After about an hour, the almost full moon comes up. Well, now I can at least see where he's going, but he has no clue where he's going. He's just sitting on the back of the horse, hoping the horse finds his way home. They ride all through the night. At one point, Mohan fell asleep, fell off the horse. Luckily, landed in a bush, got a little scratched up, but he wasn't hurt, and the horse didn't run off. He gets back on. No sign of lights, no sign of nothing. It's beginning to get light in the east. This is bad. If you haven't had anything to drink, and you're going to be spending the day in the desert, uh, not good. Uh, sun's coming up. It comes over the horizon, and it's already getting warmer. And suddenly the horse pricks up its ears and breaks into a little trot and comes to a stream. The horse is face down in the stream. Mohan is face down in the stream, upstream from the horse, of course. (laughs) Right? And he drinks his fill, and the horse drinks its fill, and it's eating some grass. Mohan doesn't eat grass. There's nothing to eat around here. And they got to find some shade. I mean, he's going to survive because he's got the water. And if he can follow the stream, he's bound to come to civilization. But, all right, go downstream. And it isn't too long before there's another rocky outcropping. And he can get into the shade of it and he falls asleep. And when he wakes up, the horse is still there. And it's sun is starting to go down. And he's like, well, I guess I have to follow the stream. The moon will be up in an hour, uh, but he, he rides along really slowly, and then the moon comes up, and it's still pretty bright, and he's following it all night, and yeah, not a sign of human habitation anywhere. No lights, nothing. Just the stream, which is getting bigger and bigger as other little streams feed into it. In the morning, it's actually quite a big river at this point. And uh, he's got to find some shade again for another day in the desert, and he's starving. At least there's plenty of water to drink. Is that smoke? It could be smoke. It's just downstream. He keeps riding. Sure enough, that's smoke. And eventually he comes to a bridge across the river, and there's a farm, a homestead there. And he starts across the bridge, clip-clop, clip-clop. And when he does, the sound obviously alerts the people in the house, and three people come out of the house. There's an older man and an older woman and a younger woman. And they come up, and they're just sort of staring at him, completely astonished. And he rides up, and he jumps off the horse, and he says... That, that big earthquake, I, I jumped on the horse, it ran away, and i got to find my way back to the magician's village because i got to return his horse, and, and I want to be his apprentice. And, and they're just staring at him, and I'm really hungry. And the old man says, we thought we were the only ones. What? Uh, we thought we were the only ones. Uh, the only ones? No, you're not the only ones. You should see Calcutta, where I come from. There's, there's lots of other people out there. I mean, and the magician's village, do you know this village? Gives the name of the village. The old man says, 
we thought we were the only ones. Uh, no, there's lots of people out there, including the magician, and uh, you wouldn't happen to have something to eat, would you? I haven't eaten in a couple of days. And the old woman says, we thought we were the only ones. Would you like something to eat? <gasps> yes, that would be very nice if I could have something to eat. The old man says, why don't you put your horse in the corral? We're not using it for any other animals. It's sort of a run-down corral, and he puts the horse in the corral, and he goes in, and they just were sitting down to breakfast when he rode up, and they're quite happy to share their breakfast with him. And he's really hungry, and basically over the next couple of hours, he learns that the old man and the old woman many years ago, used to live in a village a few miles further downstream. This village a few miles further downstream was the caravan crossing point. And the village made a pretty good living. They would grow food and they could restock the caravans when they crossed the river there because it was a nice ford and it wasn't such a rushing stream at that point. And they could trade their food for whatever the caravan was carrying and get some pretty cool stuff. And if they didn't want it, they could trade it with the next caravan. And, you know, it was it was a pretty good deal. And then one year when it was time for the caravans to come, no caravans came. You know, like a month, no caravans. Two months, no caravans. Three months, no caravans. Finally, a lone horseman rides up and everybody rushes out. Are you from the caravans? Are you from the caravans? And he's like, nah, caravans won't be coming anymore. They built a bridge downstream. They're, they're crossing it further down. It saves them long, saves them like two days. Oh, what are we going to do? Well, I don't know. You got any food? Yeah, so they had lots of food. And... uh the guy ate and rode away. And they were like, oh, this is terrible. What do we do? Well, that wasn't nearly as bad as the disease that showed up a month later. Somebody'd wake up in the morning, felt a little weird. By lunchtime, they were deathly ill, and by sundown, they were dead. And it just swept through the village wiping out family after family. There were only two survivors, actually. It was this boy and this girl who were 10, 11 years old. They were on their own, and they didn't stay in the village. They moved upstream to this abandoned farm, and they had been living there ever since, and this was their daughter. And they thought they were the only ones. They hadn't understood what had happened. And no, Mohan declared there were lots of other people in the world, that India was full of people. And uh, he actually needed to get back to the magician's village, and he would try riding further downstream to where that supposed bridge was, where maybe there'd be a village. They could tell him how to get back to the magician's village. And they said, well, why don't you rest up? I mean, you've had... Quite an ordeal, you know, riding all night for two nights and everything. Take a break, rest up, and you can go tomorrow. And uh, Mohan thought that was nice. Besides, their daughter was quite lovely. And uh, so he stayed, and the old woman was a really good cook. And uh, yeah, and so the next morning, they had breakfast, and then the old man said, before you rush off, could, could we borrow your horse? You see, to plow the fields, to grow the food that we've been eating, uh, I've been dragging the plow while my wife guided it. And it's really hard to plow, but with your horse, we could do all the plowing in just a day or two instead of it taking a month. It'd be a lot easier on me. I'm getting really old. And Mohan yeah, of course. I mean, you've been really nice to me, and yeah, I'll help you apply your field. To make a long story short, 
10 years later, (laughs) Mohan and their daughter have a son who's six, and it's been a pretty idyllic life. A little lonely, but the old man and his wife knew lots of stories. Because, of course, when the caravans came through, they were always telling stories. And, you know, they had learned all these stories, and they entertained Mohan and, and... Their daughter was indeed very lovely, and yeah, it was a good life. But one day, the old man was walking across the bridge, and he tripped, stumbled, fell in the river, and drowned. I mean, it was horrible. This idyllic life, suddenly, this patriarch of the experience was gone. The old woman was inconsolable. She's crying and screaming and wants to throw herself in the river. Mohan and his wife are trying to get her calmed down. And she's really upset. And the little boy is upset. And it's it's horrible. And they finally get her calmed down. And she cries herself to sleep. And Mohan and his wife are, you know, they're beside themselves. And they look up and, oh, no. She's waked up and she's going towards the bridge. They go running after her, screaming. She's standing in the middle of the bridge. Just before they get to her, she looks at them and throws herself in the river and drowns. Well, now Mohan's wife loses it. She wants to throw herself in the river. And Mohan has to drag her back. And she's crying and screaming. And the little boy, he's upset. I mean, he's seen both of his grandparents die right before his eyes. And Mohan's trying to get him calmed down. And finally his wife seems to be calmed down. The little boy's crying and he's trying to comfort the little boy and his wife is gone. Oh no, he runs outside. She's standing in the middle of the bridge looking at the water. He goes running towards her. No, no. She looks at him, throws herself in the river and drowns. Mohan sinks down to his knees. He's got his head in his hands. He looks up. His son is standing in the middle of the bridge looking at the water. Mohan screams, no! His son looks at him, throws himself in the river, and drowns. Mohan staggers to the middle of the bridge. Nothing to do. Puts his hand over his eyes. Leans out with one hand. Topples off the bridge. And just as his hand hits the water, the magician's wife says, there you are, sir. Enjoy your tea. Things are not what they seem to be. (laughs) And we get fooled so easily. We'll buy into anything. This world is full of things that appear other than they are. That's the definition of an illusion. Something that appears as something other than it is. There's magician tricks, right? There's money. I mean, why do you carry circles of metal in your pocket? You need a screwdriver? You've got to make a decision. You need to know what the queen looks like. No, we say they're valuable, but they don't really have much intrinsic value. The gold-looking ones aren't gold. The silver-looking ones aren't silver. Right? It's just valuable. And then paper money. I mean, that's actually not even as useful as the paper, as the metal stuff. I mean, what are you going to do with that paper? You carry it around because you need toilet paper? Nah. Because you can roll it up. No, you don't do that anymore. (laughs) Right? It's not even very good for lighting a fire. And and think about it. You got a five and you got a 20. Is the 20 four times as big as the five? I mean, it's a little bit bigger. But and it's still got the same queen on it. How come it's four times as valuable? And a 50 is 10 times as valuable as a 5. We're making this stuff up. Money's an illusion, not real. Well, we just agreed it was, and so we go around, hey, can I have that? Sure, you have a piece of paper. People are happy. What's even weirder is credit cards. I mean, you go into a store, you get a bunch of stuff, you walk out, they get really upset. 
right? You go into a store, you get the same stuff. You go up to the front, you give them this piece of plastic. They give it back to you. They give you a piece of paper and you make a magic mark on the piece of paper. Or maybe you make a magic mark on a screen. And then they give you a piece of paper to take home and throw away. And you walk out and everybody's happy. This is stupid, people. This is absurd. You know. Weird. Weird. Lots of weird stuff. Like the moon. Did you watch the moon come up last night? No, that's right. You were meditating last night. Okay, but it was full moon, right? It comes up. It's gigantic. And then a few hours later, it shrinks down. You can do a really cool trick in San Francisco. You find a street that goes up a hill facing east, and you wait, and when the full moon comes up at the top of the hill, it's gigantic. You run up to the top of the hill, and it shrinks down. Then you turn around, and you run back to the bottom, and look up, it's big again. Now, how does the moon know whether you're at the top of the hill or the bottom of the hill? (laughs) Right? Yeah, I mean, you can take a coin and hold it up to the full moon just as it comes up and it looks huge. And it's about the size of the coin. And then six hours later, you hold it up and it's still the same size as the coin. It's an illusion that it's changing size. But you can say, oh, it's a giant full moon. And yeah, all your friends agree. There's lots of illusions around. You got a dot box in your house? A dot box? I think they call them televisions. Right? But it's just a box of dots. Right? The dots are winking on and off real fast. You know? You ever watch guys watching sports on TV? They'd be screaming at the dots. Go! Go! Dots aren't going anywhere. Right? Delusion. We're happy to do it. You buy a big 22-inch, 48-inch dot box. Spend a lot of those pieces of paper. So you can watch, well, I don't know. You watch better stuff than they watch in America. That's good. But speaking of watching, you go to the movies. How much does that cost you? What, eight, ten pounds, something like that? You're paying that good money to watch them shine a bright light through a piece of plastic, right? But, you know, you like it, and you're there, and the ship sinks, and all those people die, and you cry. And <laughs> Those people didn't die. They paid them to act like that. <laughs> but we get into it. We, we, we pay money to buy into the illusion. Illusion's everywhere. The solidity of the table... That's another illusion. The table, well, it's made of molecules, which are mostly empty space, except for the atoms, which are mostly empty space, except for the protons, electrons, neutrons, which, of course, are mostly empty space, except for the quarks and the gluons. Not much there at all. I mean, when they said it was empty, it's really pretty empty. But it works, you know. Water glass doesn't fall through. But its solidity is an illusion. All kinds of illusions everywhere. There's everybody's favorite illusion. A rainbow. I mean, what is a rainbow? Well, it's sunlight and raindrops and an observer in the right place. You remove any one of those three and you don't have a rainbow. And what's really interesting, you can be standing next to your friend and say, oh, look, a rainbow. And your friend goes, yeah, cool, but you're looking at two different rainbows. Mm -hmm. The raindrops making what you see are not the raindrops making what your friend sees. But you can talk about the rainbow. Look, look, it's double there, right? So what is a rainbow? Is it a thing? And is there a pot of gold at the end of it? Right? It's a process. It's only a process. As the sunlight, that's a process. There are the falling raindrops, that's a process. And there's you observing, that's a process. And this thing appears, only it's not a thing. But we thingify it so we can talk about it. There's another illusion that, well... 
perhaps causes more confusion than rainbows. And that's the illusion of self, me, the most important person in the universe. It certainly seems like there's somebody here, some little guy behind the eyeballs pulling the levers and making it happen. It's a really difficult illusion to get past. It's when you look to try and find the little guy, it's not your body, at least you hope not, considering the body's wearing out. But it's not any of your mental components that you can really nail down. Everywhere you look, that's not self. But despite your looking and not finding a self, you still think there's a self. I got to get my whatever. On the spiritual path, what we're aiming to do is penetrate the illusion of self. It's a difficult illusion to penetrate. I mean, you can hold the coin up to the moon and penetrate that illusion. Still looks big when it comes up, but you know better. You're not fooled. You're not wondering, is it shrinking or anything? But the self one, even though you can't find a self, you're like, oh, it's got to be there. I just, I just didn't see it, right? I mean, who else could it be in there? It's got to be me. The problem with the illusion of self is that the self is the craver and the clinger. If you want to get beyond the craving and clinging that the Buddha pointed out is a necessary condition for the arising of dukkha, you're going to have to penetrate the illusion of self. It's not an easy illusion to penetrate, but it's a worthwhile illusion to penetrate. Let's say you have a friend who has a sailboat, and your friend says, hey, let's sail from Dartmouth to Brest, right? And you're like, no way, man. Have you seen you get six miles out and you fall off the edge of the world? And you're like, you're not about to get in a sailboat because it could go six miles out and fall off the edge of the world. Happens all too frequently. You go to the beach, you look out there, you see this ship gets too close to the edge of the world, falls off. All those people die. Terrible. You are making a decision based on an illusion. Right? Let's say they grab you, they stick you in a Soyuz capsule, they blast you off to the International Space Station, you look down, you see it's a sphere, they explain gravity to you, you go back to the beach, looks the same, the ship goes over the horizon, you no longer think it fell off the edge of the world. Your friend says, I got a sailboat, let's sail from Dartmouth to Brest, and you're like, no, I get seasick. <laughs> you're not making a decision based on an illusion. The problem with the illusion of self is that we make decisions based on that illusion. It's called selfishness. And if we can overcome that sense of self, we don't have a basis for selfish action. And if we don't have a basis for selfish action, then we don't do any craving or clinging and we're free of dukkha. But me telling you up here, it's just an illusion. Get over it. It doesn't work because the Buddha's been telling you it's just an illusion for, well, as long as you've been hanging around Buddhism. And you probably still haven't gotten over it. It's tricky. There's another illusion that's pretty cool that we use all the time. Time. What is time? My dad asked me that when I was like 10 or 12, and I was like... What is time? I think that was the first time I ever got the dictionary and looked up a word on my own, not because my teacher told me to. But I still didn't know what it was. I mean, what is it really? I mean, the clocks measure it, but what is it? Well, I thought about it a lot. You know, it's got some weird characteristics. It only goes in one direction. How come it only goes forward? How come it never goes backwards? I mean, I can get up, I can walk to the back wall, and I can come back here. 
right? I can go forwards and backwards. But I can't go back to yesterday, and I, I can't even go forwards to tomorrow, except at the rate of one minute every minute, right? And, and what about yesterday? What about the past? What is the past? Is it anything more than memories? Does it actually exist? And the future? Is it anything more than your fantasies? Is it out there somewhere? So what is time? Well, it turns out it's an illusion. What's going on is change. That's all there is, is change. Things are changing. And we attempt to measure the rate at which things change. And in so doing, we create the illusion of time. When you understand that there's no such thing as time, that it's only an illusion, it's very obvious why it goes in only one direction. What's happening is change. I can pick up the striker, wave it in the air, and put it right back where it came from. But I didn't unchange the movement of the striker. Putting it back didn't make all the cars on the motorway go backwards, right? You can only make a small, tiny bit of the world unchange. And really, it's just changing again to be like it was before, right? So there's no such thing as time. But can you step outside of time? I'm going to suggest that you actually can. So I've given you a number of things to do when you're doing walking meditation. Here's another one. You can do this as walking meditation or going for a walk. It's actually quite good if you're going for a walk and you don't have to navigate your way back and you don't have to pay real careful attention to where you're stepping. Go for a walk and notice change. Right? That bird is changing its position in the sky. This tree that is now horizontal changed its position from vertical to horizontal. Right? But it's always now. Right? As you walk along, it's always now. In fact, it's never not been now. If you had a watch that only said now, <laughs> what time is it now? <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't even need a battery. It'd always be correct. You might be late for the sitting, but okay. Time is a useful illusion, but it is possible to step outside of it. So when you're walking along, try and walk along in not the eternal now, because that postulates time, the ever-changing now. Now is not a little narrow thing. That's all there is. Can you get your mind into a space where you're just experiencing change? No past, no future, just things changing. It's tricky, but try and walk along doing that. Now, you've got to pay attention. You've got to be mindful. You can't be thinking about the past. You can't be thinking about the future. You've got to stay in the present, in the now, and just really see can you walk along outside of time. It's a very interesting insight practice. It gives you some idea of how difficult it is to step out of the self-illusion. Because you might even be able to fully grok, fully understand that time is an illusion, that it's an emergent property of our attempting to measure change. But it's real hard to set it aside. It's a lot harder with the self thing. In order to set the self aside, you need enough insight into reality that you're willing to let go. That's the only way you get there. The only way to get enough insight into reality is to investigate reality. It helps you if you have a well-concentrated mind. And investigate the ever-changing nature, the unsatisfactory nature and or the empty nature of reality. When you get deep enough into one of these, it might get a little freaky. For example, you're investigating change and you start realizing that everything is changing all the time. 
Nothing is ever staying the same. You get deep enough in it, and well, it's sort of like you go to the beach, but instead of seeing the edge of the world, you build a sandcastle. You do have beaches that have something other than rocks around here, don't you? Yes. You've got sandy beaches. So you build a nice sandcastle. Let's say you've got a little kid with you, and the two of you build this great sandcastle, right? Towers, turrets, drawbridge, the whole works. And a big wave comes along and wipes it out. Do you get upset? No. You understand the nature of sandcastles. A little kid might be crying. <coughs> well, I got news for you people. It's all sandcastles out there. If you get that insight and really see it's all sandcastles, it might kind of freak you out. This is called the knowledge of terror. Uh, the uh, dark night sometimes called the dark night of the soul. That's from uh, um, St. John. John of the Cross. But yeah, the dark night on the spiritual path. We're hanging on so tightly to stuff, including the idea of self, that we actually have to be kind of shaken up before we're willing to let go. So you get enough insight into the impermanent nature of everything and start seeing it's all sandcastles. That might freak you out. All those things you were counting on for your security, they're just like the sandcastles. I mean, when you build a right nice sandcastle, you don't think, oh, this is a good sandcastle. Let's take it home in the trunk of the car. We'll put it on the dining room table. But you're taking these other changeable things and taking them home in the trunk of the car and thinking they're going to bring you lasting happiness. You get that, you might get freaked out. Keep practicing. If you keep practicing, you'll move through it. It goes in stages. After the sort of initial freak out, you see the danger in grabbing hold of stuff. And you want to get out of where you are. You're looking for some other way. You want what's called a desire for deliverance. Uh, you keep practicing. You keep re looking at the previous insights you've had in terms of this new experience. And eventually you get to a place of very high equanimity, unshakable equanimity. They call it equanimity about sankharas, about fabrications, concoctions. Equanimity about the whole world. So unshakable, you look at something and you see it's attractive and you're not attracted. You look at something, you see it's disgusting and you're not disgusted. Right? That kind of unshakable equanimity. If you get to that point and you're truly willing to let go of everything for the deepest truth there is, you might just let go. You might grab that rope we talked about this morning and swing across to the other side of the river and let go. And if you do, you might have an experience without an experiencer. And if you do, you know, yeah, this sense of self is an illusion. It's not really there. This is what is known as stream entry. And it is said to uproot three of the ten fetters that bind us to the wheel of samsara. It uproots the wrong view of self. Okay, you've been thinking, yeah, but there's really a self in here. And now you've actually fully experienced ain't nobody home. It's just phenomena rolling on. There's a mind and a body, but not a self. It just all happens without selves. So it uproots the wrong view of self, that there is one. It also uproots doubt, because uh, you did what the Buddha told you to do. You got the result he said you were going to get. What's the doubt? And it uproots the belief in the efficacy of rites and rituals. You didn't get this experience because you lit enough candles or did enough prostrations. You got it because of insight into the nature of reality. So those three fetters are uprooted. It is also said that uh, someone who's a stream enterer has uh, morality dear to the noble ones, which is sometimes interpreted that you can't break a precept. 
I would say it's more likely that you can't unknowingly break a precept. Your dedication to living a harmless life is much higher. And if you do kill the ants in your kitchen, it hurts. You're not just mindlessly spraying them with bug spray or something. Okay, you're you're very aware of your ethical behavior, and it also says one has a greater dedication to Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, which yeah, I mean this has taken you to a place that is pretty profound, and so you're more dedicated to working on the path. But there's still seven more fetters that are left, so you have to keep practicing. This is a great thing about these stages of awakening. If you have one of them, the instructions remain the same. So if you think you might have had one, doesn't matter, the instructions remain the same. You just keep practicing. Eventually, you might repeat that experience, an experience without an experiencer. Maybe at the same level, multiple times, but hopefully at some point you have a more profound experience without an experiencer. This takes you to the next level, which is called a once-returner. Now, it's said that a stream-enterer will only be reborn at most seven more times in the human realm before achieving total awakening and is protected from falling into the lower realms. So if you're into multiple lifetimes, good thing to do. You're safe. All right? Uh, The once-returner will only be born one more time in the human realm at most. Uh, before they attain full awakening, if you're into multiple lifetimes. Uh, The once-returner weakens passion for pleasure and ill will. It's sometimes said greed and hatred, but the actual Pali words are passion for pleasure and ill will. So you're no longer quite so greedy and so angry and hateful. But there's still more work to do, and the instructions remain the same. Keep doing it. Maybe you repeat it at the same level, and then you get a still more profound experience. And this time you become a non-returner. You uproot the passion for pleasure and the ill will. And this is a pretty profound place. Uh, It's said that if you die before you become awakened, then you'll be reborn in one of the highest heavens, and you'll attain awakening there without ever coming back to the human realm turns out that in the Brahminical tradition, part of their cosmology involved exactly these type of things. You could be reborn in a better place that would keep you from falling to the lower realms, and you could do that multiple times. You could be reborn not quite with union with Brahma, but close, and you only have to come back one more time. Uh, You could be born even closer to union with Brahma and not have to come back at all. You're going to have another incarnation, but you won't have to come back here. Or you could make it all the way to union with Brahma. So I'm suspecting these terms actually were lifted from Brahmanism. Okay? But there do seem to be these more profound states that take you more and more away from the sense of self. At each of these more profound experiences of not-self, the feeling of self is weakened. Until finally, you can overcome the last five fetters, which is desire for form and desire for formless. Now that gets interpreted to mean desire for rebirth in worlds of form and desire for rebirth in formless worlds, which I'm not buying Uh, It just says desire for form and desire for formless. Uh, Sort of having things nice, nice objects and nice uh, ideas and so forth. So not greed so much, but just liking things nice. And then there's ignorance, restlessness, and conceit. And remember, conceit is conceiving of a self. Way back at stream entry, you had an experience without a self, but it still feels like there's a self. Now, at full awakening, which is what this fourth level is, it uproots those remaining five fetters, and it no longer feels like there's a self. There's no more conceiving of a self. 
And then there's full awakening and you have done what needed to be done. So if you want to shatter the illusion of self, the basic idea is gain enough insight into the nature of reality. Enough insight that you will let go because what you need to do is have an experience without an experiencer and the way to have such an experience is to let go. And you get enough of those experiences and it's transformative. Get enough of those experiences and there's no more dukkha. Any questions? A path moment would be an experience without an experiencer. So each of these, the stream entry experience which is an experience without an experiencer, is a path moment, right? The path moment is like, wow. And it's followed by the fruit moment, which is like, whoa, what was that? And you're trying to integrate it. If you have one of these, it may take a little while to integrate what happened because it's pretty profound. This is, yeah, a lot more amazing than your ordinary experiences are, your ordinary insights. I mean, ain't nobody home, right? And so the fruit moment is immediately following it, and then there's a period of integration. And it's probably going to take some integration time before you can repeat, even at the same level. You mean use the fourth jhana for supernormal powers? Uh, I think I address the supernormal powers here as I'm thinking it's uh, lucid dreaming. Okay? And I whether that helps you to get an understanding of not-self or not, I don't know. Uh, as I said, I wouldn't waste my time pursuing that. I use the concentrated mind to actually investigate the nature of reality rather than trying to walk on water. They do build bridges these days. Can you run through the um, ten fetters again? Okay, the ten fetters. So the three that come, that are uprooted at stream entry, wrong view of self, the belief in the efficacy of rites and rituals, and doubt. And then the next two are weakened at the next level and uprooted at the third stage, and that's passion for pleasure and ill will. And then the last five fetters, the so-called higher fetters or subtle fetters, uh, desire for form and desire for formless, Ignorance, restlessness, and conceit, or conceiving of a self. Can you say something about the nature of love? Can I say something about the nature of love? It's really good. (laughs) It's got the best nature of about anything I can think of. Ah... Part of that is that if it's really love, you've stepped outside of self. It's gotten beyond the selfishness. It's actually wishing the best for someone without regard to, so that I. It's an unconditional feeling, uh, wishing of happiness and joy to yourself and to others. So, it's... It's a concept, right? I wouldn't say it is a super mundane thing or anything like that, but it's a very, very important concept. It's, it's a state that is highly useful to practice because it, it makes it much easier to relate 
to the beings around you, makes it much easier to keep the precepts, uh, provides uh, depth of communication that can't be provided any other way, and uh, really sets you in motion in the right direction. In examining the suttas, the teachings on the four Brahma-viharas, it would appear that if you get quite skilled in them, it'll take you all the way to that third stage of awakening. Right? It, it doesn't seem to be quite enough to overcome the sense of, yeah, there's still somebody in here, the feeling of a self. But, hey, third stage of awakening is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's a, it's a very profound... Uh, mind state that should be cultivated to the best of your ability as frequently as you can. I don't think so. So yes, I get the joke. Right. Through the desert and a horse with no name. Yeah, yeah, we really want to get people and put them in an fMRI and have them <laughs> screen entry experience. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, there may be different changes. Yeah. There are, there are changes. So yeah. Whether they're measurable. Right, yeah, it would be really nice to do a longitudinal study of a lot of meditators and just frequently putting them in and interviewing and trying to find out where they are on the path and see what's changed. Uh, so you get a, a bunch of people that are meditators and a bunch of people that don't meditate and, you know, similar life circumstances and so forth and check all this out. I probably could be done for, you know, only a few million dollars if you've got some spare change or something. Uh, what? It's only bits of paper. It's only bits of paper, right. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I would love to see something like that. Uh, there is a book called Why God Won't Go Away. And uh, the, guys are, the guy that wrote it, uh, it's two authors, unfortunately, one of them died before the book came out, but the guy who brought it to completion seems to be a bit theistic. Uh, but it's an interesting book about the research that they've done, working with people that have had profound mystical experiences and to try and determine what goes on. It would seem that they have less activity than the average person in the parts of the brain that generate the sense of self. All right? So we know that when you get concentrated, the parts of the brain that generate the sense of self quiet down. So uh, you would think if the self, the selfing, because it's not a thing, it's an activity, goes away, then those parts of the brain would quiet down considerably. But yeah, we don't have any research on that. Uh, I've certainly discussed it with my neuroscientist friends, and they're all for it. I just need the funding. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think there's any value in doing practices like you find in Advaita Vedanta with the, you know, um, direct pointing or self-inquiry? Yeah, are the Advaita Vedanta practices useful practices? As far as I've been able to tell, yeah, they seem to be good. Uh, I would classify them as insight practices. Concentrate your mind and play with those. Yeah, there's some good stuff there. Do you think care that when that conceit of self is seen through, love tends to be kind of there? Yeah, yeah. If there's no basis for selfish action, then there's... A... I mean, it's almost like that, that as a kind of basic factor yeah. of work. Right, exactly. You have recognized the interconnectedness at a, at a very deep level... You're not, you're not separating yourself out as this one is enlightened. You're you're, you're really connecting with what's there. Um, they say that the 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 awakening experience is the realization of nibbana. Uh, tomorrow night I will talk about 
Nibbana, as described in the suttas. I, I really want to do the talk. Nibbana from personal experience, but <laughs> I still got to work on that talk. So, but I'll at least give you what the suttas say. Yeah. <laughs> well. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I would think that the realization of Nibbana, in addition to shattering the illusion of self, shatters the illusion of separateness, and uh, the natural response is love and compassion. Yeah. I mean, you think about it. The Buddha spent 45 years dealing with all sorts of problems out of compassion to try and help people get out of dukkha. You know, it was just the real natural response. At first he was hesitant to teach, but then he decided to give it a go, and it turned out it worked, thankfully. Um, <clears throat> I guess there are lots and lots of aspects of self that have to be let go of. Yes. But it seems some are easier than others, and always I come back to, there's a point of view, I mean, seeing from here mm-hmm. does that remain or I mean that's so fundamental to what it is to be a body and a, a mind and alive yeah. and yet that's the at least part of the origin of the little guy behind there pulling the levers right. so is it somehow that point of view remains without there being anyone having it or, or does the point of view have, have to disintegrate completely no I think the point of view remains the way I understand it or we got the universe here right the universe pokes up an eyeball, right? Actually, two eyeballs with little microphones here, right? And furthermore, the eyeball is wandering around on the surface of the universe. It's, it's a mobile sensing device, right? And it can sense pieces of the universe. And eventually it senses the sensing device. And since it's not connected to the rest of the universe, it thinks it's separate. And it comes up with the idea of self. But I think even if you stop making the mistake of thinking this piece of the universe is separate from the rest of the universe, this point of view still remains. It's, it's inbuilt to the way our senses are constructed. But there's the capacity to look down and see the sensing device without conceiving of there being an entity in here. It's just the sensing device sensing the sensing device. Or it's just the sensing device being sensed. Right? Keep putting stuff in the passive voice, and you can take the eye out of it, and you begin to get a sense of where it comes from and how it works. Um, I think also there'd be a point of view that there'd be no attachment to the Yes, Exactly. The point of view is just a point of view, right? Yeah, and without a self in there to attach, it's just the world, the sensing device is seeing the world from this point of view. Or the Ah, and that relates to the going along and seeing things arising and falling away, because then the point of view is like appearing and disappearing as well. Oh, yes. It's not just out there, it's in here as well. so, So part of the problem is is the illusory continuity of the point of view. Exactly. That it's still me looking from here and now here, and that can be dropped. Right, yeah. There's still points of view arising. Yeah, yeah, there, there is seeming continuity. Well, there is continuity, actually, but it's only because it's changing slow enough that you think it's a thing. I mean, it's like the, the movie. There it's changing fast enough that you think it's motion. Right? But we don't really see what's going on. Here, when you begin to get it, you know, it's just input happening. And it's being processed, and there's a reaction to the environment. But there's nobody in there. Right? And it's all changing internally and externally. That's why the investigation of the arising and passing can get you to the point where you're seeing its sandcastles and you're willing to let go and have such an experience. Yeah. Um, is stream entry um, has definitive an experience, or is it a progression of 
Yeah, this is the old sudden awakening or gradual awakening discussion. Uh, certainly people do have a wow experience. Uh, but it does seem that there are people that it's sort of gradual as well. Uh, I'd say just keep practicing and gaining as much insight as you can and letting go as much as possible. If you have a stream entry experience that's a wow one, you'll know, wow. And if it happens gradually, you still get the same effect. Um, I don't think... I don't think there's really enough information available to say definitively, oh, it has to always be a wow or anything else. But it does seem to be that there are enough significant insights that come along that have to be integrated along the way. So uh, I read a very interesting book that Joseph Goldstein recommended to me called uh, Tracing Back the Radiance, which is by a Korean Zen master named Chanul. And he's talking about Sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. So you, you get a big insight, but you're gonna, it's going to take some time for you to integrate that experience into your life. And so, yeah, there's going to be some sudden stuff and there's going to be some long-term stuff, and you just keep practicing. Luckily, the instructions remain the same all the way up <laughs> till you're done. Tracing Back the Radiance by Chanul. Okay, so we'll take a short break. Maybe we should do like last night, a very short break. I'll turn down the lights and then do metta.